0: At that time, the deputy governor of the PBOC, it was Yi Gang, who then later became the central banker. So Yi Gang he endorsed this plan the next day after President Xi Jinping's announcement. He he literally said this is quite necessary and timely to expand fund capital. So you know, I just feel like you know you are absolutely right. Despite the first time when China leveraged its foreign exchange reserve was to capitalize. Uh, central Huijin to solve a crisis, and now even the central bankers themselves are more aligned with President Xi Jinping and the strategic aspect of it.
1: Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged
2: For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary people from all around the world. In this series, I have invited one of them, namely Kevin Koldine, to host a series of in-depth conversations to help uncover and explain new ideas to make you a better investor. In the series, Kevin will be speaking to authors of new books and research papers to better understand the global economy and the dynamics that shape it, so that we can all successfully navigate the challenges within it. And with that, please welcome Kevin
3: Coldiron. Okay, uh, thanks, Niels, and welcome, everyone. So today we're going to roll up our sleeves and get into the weeds a little bit to understand how China manages its vast wealth. We've all heard the term sovereign wealth funds, pools of money accumulated by countries and invested in global markets. And our guest today is gonna introduce you to a new term, sovereign leveraged funds. These are also pools of capital, but they're leveraged either directly or indirectly. And they're not just used as passive investment vehicles. They're used to further the goals of the government that controls them. And that's important for anyone who wants to understand how global markets are working now, but it's also a window into the future because it's a structure and a philosophy that more countries are likely to adopt. So here to tell us about all of this is Zoe Liu, author of a new book, How the Communist Party of China Finances Its Global Ambition. Zoe, thanks so much for joining us and uh, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Kevin, for having me. I listened to the Ideas Lab myself and uh, uh, it's exciting that you invited me. It's an honor, thank you.
3: Well, it's it's the pleasure is all ours. Um, so can you, can you just tell us a little bit about your personal background, where you grew up, where you studied, and what you're currently doing for a day job?
0: Sure. Um, I grew up in a seashore city in China called Yantai. Uh, my hometown uh, actually makes, my hometown makes perhaps arguably the best beer and best wine you can find in China,
3: Oh, okay. I'm going to note that down.
0: Yes. And right now, I am the Maurice Greenberg Fellow for China Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. And I also teach uh, graduate-level classes at the uh, Johns Hopkins University.
3: Okay. Um, so your, your day-to-day job is kind of uh, research and analysis on China's global economic policy, political policy, kind of the inter- intersection of those?
0: Uh, so I am a um, political economist focusing on uh, East Asia and uh, the Gulf of uh, the Arabian Gulf countries, in particular, the Gulf Corporation Council members. And uh, in that arena, I do energy and finances. So a lot of the stuff that I do situates at the intersection of you know, energy from hydrocarbon to now everybody's talking about renewables and uh, clean energy or Uh, the energy transition, and uh, uh, actually this is very much related to finance because financial markets and uh, major institutional investors are at the frontier of this kind of, you know, from ESG transformation in terms of investment framework uh, or, you know, climate financing now.
3: Okay. Um, So what got you interested in, Writing this particular book and digging into the details of how China manages its 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 money,
0: Um, I uh, so this book is half of my doctoral dissertation, and um, you know the actual dissertation itself probably is more technical than the the book and i think i have become a better writer since when i was (laughs) in school (laughs) i try and um uh, i originally want when came when i came to into uh my graduate program what i really wanted to do was to study cross-border pipelines and in terms i I was very interested in at which point um natural gas you know natural gas you can you can ship it in terms of liquefied natural gas or Piped gas, and I was very interested in in, in the broader you know, context of the energy transition. Why countries choose to build pipelines versus tankers? So, uh, at this, and from there, I started to stumble upon uh, how countries recycle their energy resource uh, money. And uh, part of this stumble upon was also related to some other some people else. Did exactly the topic that I wanted to do, so I pivoted, uh, tried to think about how these countries manage their natural resources, and from there I realized, oh, okay, it's very interesting that these countries have uh, this this vehicle called a sovereign wealth fund, and obviously growing up in China, uh, I always tried to see if China has something similar, and I stumbled upon China Investment Corporation, and. Especially, the literature was particularly rich to talk about the role of China's sovereign uh, funds, uh, or CIC, China Investment Corporation, during the global financial crisis. And it becomes a puzzle to me, given that most of the so-called sovereign wealth funds are funded and capitalized by natural resources using um, basically the, natu- the monetization of natural resource revenue. And the, the hosting countries are mostly in countries like Norway, Qatar, UAE, this kind of natural resource exporting countries. It becomes a puzzle. So why China, being the largest commodity importer in the world, ended up having sovereign wealth fund? It just simply does not make any sense to me. So I looked into it and the, the prevailing explanation seems to be interesting, but at least, but for me, it's intellectual unsatisfying, because scholars say, "Well, you know, the reason why China has a sovereign wealth fund is because it has a lot of foreign exchange reserves." But then the question becomes, well, Japan also has a lot of foreign exchange reserves, but Ministry of Finance of Japan specifically rejected this idea. So that's where I get
3: started. Let's take a step back, actually. Let's talk about those foreign exchange reserves, since that really became the, if you will, the seed capital for a lot of these southern, what you call southern leveraged funds. So I'm going to try to do a little summary that, you know, if you, I, anyone who's got an advanced degree in economics and finance might might wince a little bit because I'm going to leave out some of the details. But broadly speaking, and let's say just simplify to China and the US, the US is a big, uh, deficit with China current account deficit so it's shipping more dollars to China than it's getting in return and over time as these deficits accumulate China ends up with um, accumulating dollars and those dollars um, ultimately end up with the central bank and uh, the central bank uh, you know those are those are called foreign exchange reserves and they're called reserves for a reason right they're, they're historically, anyway, used as kind of like a rainy day fund if the country needed to access foreign currency. And because of that, they, again, historically were kept in very safe securities like treasury bonds, treasury bills. Um, and so your book is really a story about how that old model has changed. So, so let, let's talk about the the buildup of China's reserves initially, and then let's talk about how they kind of shifted from the old model to to the new model. So, when did China first start to accumulate meaningful holdings of foreign exchange reserves? When did it when did it peak? And can you give us a sort of rough sense of the of the scale?
0: First of all, China as a country is not always uh, has had massive amount of foreign exchange reserves, right? When China was first established in 1949, or the the People's Republic of China PRC, um, the country was actually one of the poorest economies in the world. And it was not until um, the reform and open up era, starting from 1978, that China started to realize, okay, so countries can accumulate foreign exchange reserves by exporting more. And importing less, and um, it was not an. I uh, the the early years of reform and open up. I would say in the early non, in the from the uh, 1980s nineteen eighties to the early nineteen nineties, the re- China's reserve accumulation was not necessarily rapid. The idea of the need to accumulate foreign exchange reserves was in the mind of the Chinese economic uh, e- Chinese economic planners like Chen Yun and others. The Critical moment making Chinese policymakers to realize it is very critical to accumulate reserves and accumulate fast was the Asian financial crisis in 1997 because they witnessed they witnessed how the lack of reserves to defend their uh, currency uh, in the neighboring countries starting from Thailand ended up uh, having devastating e- effect on their economy. So at that time, um, Chinese premier. Uh, also, a very important le- uh, economic figure, uh, Zhu Rongji. He was the person uh, not just uh, coming out and de- defended the position, defended the position in terms of China is the renminbi would not depreciate, um, but also emphasized the need to accumulate foreign exchange reserves. And even later years, when as after China joined the WTO uh, in 2000. In December 2001, uh, you know, a lot of Chinese po- Chinese leaders, including uh, the People's Bank of China governor uh, at that time, uh, you know, from Dai Xianglong to Zhou Xiaochuan and Premier Zhu Rongji, they realized that China actually started to accumulate reserves at a faster speed because of joining the WTO and trading more. And at that time, when people asked, uh, the question, you know, China started to accumulate more reserves. And does that mean, you know, we can stop accumulate now because, you know, by IMF or World Bank, a measure, international standard, uh, sufficient amount of reserves or the so-called optimal level of foreign exchange reserves is something about three months of um, trade payment. And I remember reading uh, Zhu Rongji's memoir and he said, And I quote him. He said, "Well, yes, uh, you know, foreign exchange reserves—they are important for economics and they are economic measures. But you know, trade balance is not the correct measure for foreign exchange reserves because the reserves are not just economic strength but also political strength. And that sort of like stuck with me for a while. And China—it's China's reserve—just keep accumulating." in the early 2000s, especially during the double-digit growth years. And right now, China's reserve has been maintaining or stabilizing at about $3 trillion, but at, uh, at its peak is more than $4 trillion. I think it's around uh, 2013, if I remember it correctly.
3: So they, they basically grew from, you know, essentially nothing um, slowly for a while, and then starting the Asia financial crisis quite quite rapidly to the point where they'd accumulated four trillion dollars. And if my numbers are correct, that's you know that's a very meaningful part of all the world's foreign exchange reserves. I don't know if it was quite fifty percent, but kind of in that in that ballpark. So at at, at some point, um, this is a, a story in your book. Um, at some point they, people start asking questions, right? Why do we, you know, not just why do we have so many foreign exchange reserves, but why are we investing them so much of them in, in such a conservative way? Can't we, you know, not only, I think initially it was, can't, can't we get higher returns, but can't we use those in, in other, in other ways? And so you, you've organized your book in, you know, I think you call them case studies, chapters on each of the key organizations that developed to manage those foreign exchange reserves. So I thought maybe we could kind of work our way through, talk about how those institutions evolved initially, and then kind of how they operate now. Um, because in, in a lot of cases, it's it, it's changed a lot. So the, the first one is, um, I'm, I'm going to try to get this pronunciation correct, Central Weechin Tell us what that organization is. What's its origin story, and and let's and then talk about what it's how it how its role evolved over time. So how, how did that how did that get started?
0: Central um, Cuisine is the first time that the Chinese government leveraged its foreign exchange reserves to solve a domestic crisis. So that's why you know the bottom line of of my book it, uh, is that. China, yes, China has the world's largest for, uh, largest sovereign funds, but they are not originally, at least they are not designed for global power projection, and this can all be traced to Central Huijin. The idea is that perhaps many of our listeners would remember China has a ver- China's banking system. Yes, it's large, but it's very much state-owned banking system, and these. The, in the ni- in the 1990s, China's the accumulated uh, non-performing loans have actually ha- had almost crippled uh, the state-owned banks. The non by certain measures, um, the non-performing loan ratio of on the balance sheet of all these banks in, reached to more than 20 percent uh, in the early 2000s.
3: And this is a situation where you have basically got state-owned banks that historically were really just vehicles to channel money to state-owned enterprises, which were typically not that profitable. So you've got basically loans being made on an economic basis to companies that are also you know, not entirely run for profit. And so a lot of those loans go bad. And that starts building up, building up, building up to a point where you know, you're, you're, the numbers in the book are quite astonishing, right? It's just a huge portion of these loans are Non-performing, worthless. So there's a there's a need to fix that problem.
0: Absolutely, and uh, I remember Deng Xiaoping once talked about the Chinese banks. They said Chinese banks are not really doing the job of banks, but they are cashiers. So the idea is that, you know, the banks are really not doing the job of identifying the best investment or capital management opportunities, but they really just did what the government let them to do in terms of giving out loans and all that. So from you are absolutely right. That was the primary reason uh, caused the non-performing loans. Now, given the importance of the Chinese banks, the state-owned banks in China's, fi- not just the financial system, but also the entire industrial organization. Uh, Ministry of Finance and the People's Bank of China need to solve the problem. But at that time, despite Ministry of Finance was the default owner or, you know, the it owns all the banks, um, but it did not really have the capacity or the money to recapitalize the bank. Now, Chinese policymakers realized, oh, OK, so now we accumulated a little bit of foreign exchange reserves. And why don't we just use the foreign exchange reserves to capitalize the banks? Because that's a easy part of money for them to use, um, and be- so that that was the background of sen- the establishment of Central Huijin. In two thousand three, Central Huijin was established, and at that time, it was a special policy vehicle for the purpose of capitalizing Chinese banks. So basically, what ended up happening was PBOC basically um, transfer or allocated a part of m- Foreign exchange reserves and transferred that into this special policy vehicle to recapitalize the bank. Now, by IMF definition, once the moment the moment when the reserves are no longer in the money in in the hand of the monetary authority is not reserves. So by default, this capitalization of Chinese banks. Through central huijin, actually used implicit leverage because you decreased the uh, the, the foreign exchange asset, a foreign exchange reserve that are supposed to be invested in safe and liquid asset, and now transferred out to recapitalize Chinese banks.
3: And that turned out. I know I'm going to jump ahead here, but that turned out actually to be really successful, didn't it? Because it it allowed the um, it, these banks to shore up their capital. And then you talk about in the book, once that happened, they were able to sell equity to Ford investors. And then following that, they were able to IPO. So you basically take the the FX reserves and you, you know, you leverage that into ultimately a few years down the road, a successful, you know, public listing of these banks.
0: Absolutely. And I do think uh you know I do think Central Huijin's track record of crisis management has been pretty good. They have success, you know, as a, as a government-owned vehicle, it has become this. I would say shareholder in chief of China's financial institutions, and um, throughout the years, I've been closely following the debate about Central Huijin and. You know, people have there have been some conversations to say, well, given that central huijin has, has has become so important, why don't we have basically have huijin become this the financial sector or the financial analogy of the SASAC or state uh, SASAC is the institution that owns or regular uh, owns uh, major state-owned enterprises. Th- those would be considered as the real economy. Why don't we have central huijin as the financial? A representative of that, given it's already become so important as shareholder in chief owning major financial institutions, and reforming Chinese banks was one achievement or the first achievement of Central Huijin. And then later years, when China's stock brokerage firms had a problem, it stepped in. And it also participated in the restructuring of China's policy banks, you know, China. um and so fr- from there on, I think right now, the relevancy of central Hui Jing is as China is experiencing another financial storm, I would not be surprised, you know, one day read read the news headline, you know, China's some of the bad uh, debt managers or the so-called asset management companies owned by the government would one day be uh, transferred or reformed under central Huijing.
3: You talk about in the book was the first the bank recapitalization then then they they rescued brokerage firms and that that was important because um with the stake in the brokerage firms and the connections there that gave them a vehicle if they wanted to help support the equity market, they could do that. and so are are you're saying do you, do you think they might be operating now um you know in helping to um, deal with the you know the, the problems at the wealth management firms? I mean would they be already in action and that's something we'll hear about down the road or and is there a way for you to even kind of figure out what they're doing in kind of a semi-real-time basis?
0: Central Huijin has been one part of the so-called national teams in terms of supporting China's domestic stock market. There is another vehicle established by under the um, under SAFE or the State Administration of Foreign Exchange that actually have historically participated in saving uh, China's stock market uh, back in 2015 when the stock market crashed. And uh, given their track record, they have done this before. That basically established that the precedent, therefore, they would... Perhaps do it again if there is a stock market crash. But now if we are talking about the um, the the wealth management or the trust industry, I think that that is a slightly different situation because uh, the wealth management and the trust in, the trust uh, industry, they belong to the so-called shadow banking system. They are not necessarily uh, in the same play field with the state-owned commercial banks. But that does not stop, uh, say central huijin potentially be stepping in, uh, because many of the important players in the trust industry, as well as in the asset management, uh, in the in the wealth management industry, are actually you know, subsidiaries of state-owned banks, either at the central government level or at the local government level, and. A few years ago, there was this um, regional bank, Baoshang Inhang, in uh, Inner Mongolia, a, a province. Uh, the news headline at the, in those days, people were saying that, well, you know, this, uh, the P- People's Bank of China is going to step in. But actually, it was not the PBOC. It was uh, Central Huijin. So from that perspective, I, I would not be surprised if they decided to to step in, uh, given that the uh, shadow banking system, uh, in particular at this this moment when people are worried whether the property, um, as we are recording now, I think the Evergrande filed for uh, Chapter 15 in a Manhattan court. So if that were going to trigger China's Lehman moment, or there even is the fear of that, I would say Central Zhou would step in. And it has the assets to do that.
3: So Central Region started off as a really a vehicle, as you say, to kind of solve problems and, and still still serves that, that function today. Um, and it seemed like based on that success, um, there was a notion that, hey, well, maybe we can, instead of just having a vehicle that can solve problems, maybe we can have something that's more proactive. And that ultimately, I think, led to the establishment of CIC, China Investment Corporation, which became a, a, another vehicle for, for China to kind of manage its foreign exchange reserves in a more, uh, a more aggressive way. And it also had a very interesting kind of founding structure, which ties into your notion of sovereign leverage funds. So can you just maybe tell us um, a little bit about the origin story of CIC, the history there?
0: Yeah, thank you, Kevin. I, I really appreciate you, you 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 pick it up on um, the funding, the, the the structure of of CIC because I think that's ultimately what makes China's uh, sovereign funds different from uh, others. You know, CIC as we are talking right now, CIC's asset under management is uh, it exceeded one point almost one point three trillion dollars, and that's larger than the um, uh, Mexican GDP. So it's it, it's it's massive. And when CIC was first established, obviously it's not from natural resource revenues, but the structure was that the Ministry of Finance uh, issued a special purpose bond and used the bond proceed to purchase foreign exchange reserves from um, the People's Bank of China. And obviously it involved, uh, you know, several designated state-owned commercial banks to buy this special purpose bond and all that. But the ultimate net effect is that The PBOC's uh, Foreign Exchange Reserve Dec- decreased. And those reserves are being transferred into this new institution called China Investment Corporation. And obviously, the investment uh, asset allocation is going to be different because most of the foreign exchange reserves are invested in low-risk liquid assets such as U.S. treasuries, whereas CIC's investment portfolio range from public equities to real estate and uh, Im- even infrastructure or startups and, and and so on. So in this whole process, what do we observe is that basically we can think about the state has a balance sheet. You know, you have a balance sheet expansion by the Ministry of finance issue bond. And then on the other hand, the bond proceed is used to capitalize a uh, new institution that invests in a different class of asset that is less liquid and less secure compared with U.S. treasuries. And that is leverage.
3: And it's also, this is kind of jumping around a little bit, but there's also an interesting power dynamic there too, right? Because- you're transferring uh, control of those um, assets to from the central bank, which is you know I'm a, started off my my life working for the central bank there to the conservative people to the Ministry of Finance that obviously had had a different agenda, is much more closely aligned with the, the the central government. So, can we talk a little bit about the evolution of CIC's investment strategy? Um, because it seemed to me that there was a there was a couple learning curves there. There was a financial learning curve, but there was also kind of like a political learning curve in terms of how do we structure investments to minimize not only minimize political problems with foreign governments, but to um, to more closely align their you know goals with what the the Chinese central government wanted to do. So when CIC started, what how did it get started in terms of its it, the type of investments? It made?
0: When CIC was started, first of all, the domestic sort of policy debate was that in terms of foreign exchange reserve management, was that, um, you know, how we are going to increase returns? Because obviously, having most of the reserves invested in US treasuries would incur uh, unmeasurable and potentially large opportunity cost. And you are absolutely right. There is the power dynamics there because. at that time around in the in 2006 and 2007 when Central when um the CIC was when CIC was established the central bankers was not in line with Minister of finance in terms of riskier investment or for that matter reserve diversification and the whole idea at that time I, I remember talking with, with with some central bankers and at that time their whole idea is still very much Reserves in the central bank today might go away tomorrow. You know the ex- whole experience of Argentina and the whole experience of the Asian financial crisis was still haunting them. But in the running up to the global financial crisis, you know, the, you know, in retrospect, the timing was not necessarily ideal when central when CIC was established. But nonetheless, ministerial finance had a ha, that that this would be a win for financial finance being able to well just give us you know 200 billion and see what what we can do with it. <laughs> you know? And uh, uh, when, I'd like to
3: be able to say that.
0: I know, right? <laughs> so the fact that the Ministry of Finance was able to uh, make this happen is tremendous because there is this historical power struggle between the CI between the Ministry of Finance and uh, the People's Bank of China because during the Cultural Revolution People's Bank of China was reduced to a subsidiary of Ministry of of, of Ministry of Finance, and it was not until uh, in the early two- in the early 1990s, especially with the uh, the the, uh, the issue of the PBOC law, that PBO the People's Bank of China became sort of liberated from uh, Ministry of Finance. So I. Th- Personally, in, in some of my conversations with with Chinese with Chinese, pol- with, with Chinese uh, policymakers as well as some some um, retired central bankers, I felt that there are some the feeling that revenge is kind of sweet in that kind of uh, dynamic. <laughs> but anyway, you know, uh, you, when CIC was first established, they had a very very small team. So in one of my conversations with the uh, CIC um, with a former CIC employee, this person told me that when At the initial funding time, they only had uh, less than a dozen people managing this massive asset. So uh, the urge to reduce cash drag or the idea, you know, you have to quickly invest your money so that you can generate return faster rather than holding cash, right? So the idea of reducing cash drag was, or the, the pressure to reduce cash drag was tremendous. And that's why even before CIC was called CIC, uh, you know, three months before the official, you know, the, the official plague was put on the on the, do- on the door, uh, they entered into this. Um, uh, they, they decided to buy uh, black uh, by uh, Blackstone, and at that time, it seems to be a good investment, especially knowing that China really did not have the financial expertise or the talent, and that was also the very first time. That Chinese foreign exchange, what was reserves now is not reserves, the, the, the first time that this kind of money is being was going to be invested in Western market, so the stakes were high, and I would say perhaps there were no better partner than um, Blackstone at that time.
3: And what, what year are we? This is 2007? 2007 Yes, seven yeah. yes. So they make a direct. Did they make a direct investment in Blackstone's it was a pre, um, equity.
0: Yeah, it was a pre-IPO uh, pur- pre-IPO purchase, and I believe at that time uh, it was a few months right before uh, the global financial crisis. So they made money and they made the investment, and then once the global financial crisis happened, obviously the share pri- the share um, depreciated by more than eighty percent. So. Uh, that was bad, but what is more interesting to me is that once um, once CIC per- did this pre ipl subscription of Blackstone, and then Blackstone's founder, the two founder, Mr. Schwartzman and Mr. Peterson, they both sold their shares. So I find that's that, that's kind of interesting because, well, you know, if I believe my shares are still going to go up or not not overvalued or undervalued, I'm going to hold on to it. But, you know, this kind of a dynamic is interesting.
3: So they they, they made several of these kind of investments in U.S. financial institutions that initially, anyway, um, not only struggled financially, but also there were these, you know, didn't look so great maybe um, politically. So there was a pivot, or an, I guess maybe not a pivot, an evolution in their investment strategy. And they they moved on to doing more, you um, Almost like limited partnership investments. Uh, so for those, yeah, you know, they would invest in a fund, but they wouldn't really control the investments. They would you know, be a shareholder in a, a private equity fund, and then the the private equity manager would go ahead and make the investments. Um, is is that accurate? Is that the kind of next stage in their evolution?
0: I think, Kevin, you are right. And part of this evolution, as far as I, uh, you know, I am informed by my research. The, there are two broader, broader broad, broadly speaking, there are two factors influenced the CIC's investment strategy and how this has evolved. Part of that was um, CIC's, um, the domestic backlash against the CIC's investment loss, especially during the global financial crisis. And then the second aspect is related to, uh, and more relevant today, is related to uh, the backlash against uh, China's state-owned, state-led owned state and strategically-oriented Investment in Western territory, and the domestic backlash, or people became concerned about CIC's investment loss, uh, was quite obvious, uh, and very, uh, to a certain extent, to me was dramatic because I thought, especially when I went when I was in China doing research for doing my initial round of of interviews and field research uh, between 2016 and 2017. At that time, I thought this. You know, sovereign wealth fund. This subject should be a sort of a niche topic. It's not, you know, every. It's not that a regular, a regular Chinese people on the street would have an interest in talking to you. But I remember you know in a cab when I was on my way to Baoli, uh, Bali Bali Dasha is you know CIC headquarters in Beijing. I was on my cab and chatting with the chatting with, with the um with my cab driver. My cab driver asked me, "Why you go to Bali Dasha? Like why you go there?" And I said, "Oh, you know, I have a meeting. I have a meeting with uh, in in, uh, in yeah, with, with with people there with people working in CIC." And he said, "Oh, CIC, I know." And he started lashing out, and he said, "You know, the arch- This person even called CIC's money losing investment as traitor because they lost." Chinese people's hard-earning foreign exchange reserves. Now, I think perhaps that's a little bit, you know, that 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 was a little bit, you know, overstretched because perhaps he did not recognize those. There is a difference between realized actual loss versus paper loss. But for, from the, from what he read, CIC lost a lot of money during the global financial crisis, and the degree of public knowledge of CIC's overseas investment debacle was surprising to me. And then uh, the international uh, backlash against China's strategically oriented investment, I would say really come after President Xi Jinping came to power and more specifically with the rolling out of the Belt and Road Initiative and the whole idea of China's state-owned investment are not necessarily for pure financial return concerns, but there are strategic orientations uh, that has triggered CIC, uh, that, that has made CIC's overseas direct investment more difficult. Because if you remember around 2013, when, when the year when China launched the Belt and Road Initiative, CIC also had some, um, around that time, CIC also had his own international, uh, its own organizational change, they elevated a direct equity uh office into an overseas direct investment subsidiary. So that was the you know that there was a CIC's domestic arm called Central Jing. There is the CIC International and a CIC capital. So CIC capital was supposed to make direct investment, but with international backlash against China's direct strategically oriented investment. Uh, as of last year, uh, actually, CIC Capital not only lost their people, their talent, but as a branch, they no longer exist.
3: That's interesting. So they've moved away um, from this direct investing. How are they executing indirect investments? You talk about d- a couple different ways. There's cooperation funds. Um, there are also, I guess, just investment vehicles that are set up in you know, financial centers that, you know, that make investments into other funds. So, what's the primary way in which CIC makes these strategic investments and try and kind of a, avoids or um, mitigates the, the, uh, the foreign screening or the, foreign, the concerns of foreign governments?
0: Um, the primary way or mechanism that cIC has evolved to do has picked has learned to do is to rather than making direct investment, the set up a partnership fund or joint investment fund. Um, you are correct that there has been so many of them, like China, Europe, China, uh, Russia, and uh, even China, uh, America, U.S.-China Industrial Corporation Fund led by CIC and Goldman Sachs, right? So uh, the, the, this, this transformation happened around 2016. At that time, uh, the general manager, Mr. Tu Guangxiao, decided that that's the way forward, because of, on the one hand, global backlash. On the other hand, we started to experience US China relationship deterioration, stringent, more stringent uh screening. And the idea is to use partnership fund, having a more uh, influential local partner so that they can assist the way that CIC invests. And the whole idea is to reduce foreign political backlash and and if we think about it in terms in terms of you know investment managers the idea is you know there is a financial there, there is uh, risk there is pure economic risk premium and then there is geopolitical or fin- or political risk premium by partnering with a local partner the idea is to reduce uh, the negative uh, political risk premium if you will
3: and you, you gave a good example in the book of how that actually worked in the U.S. with the China-U.S. Investment Partnership. Uh, can you tell us that story about uh, Boyd uh, when, when that, that fund wanted to buy a California company and then the Congress raised a red flag and they were able to get it through
0: uh, yes. So um, this the fund that you are talking about. First of all, thank you for your careful read of uh, of my of my writing, and this this means a lot coming from you know somebody like you. Your your um your your the rise of carry. Certainly, you also talked about sovereign funds and their role in carry trade. Uh, and thank you. And uh, so that particular story really relates to uh, CIC's partnership with uh, Goldman Sachs. There is this the fund, the joint investment fund was set up when, was announced when President, when President Trump visited Beijing. And uh, during that time, the, the U.S. and China, the Chinese policymakers and U.S. policymakers and leaders announced that there is going to be this U.S.-China joint investment, U.S.-China industrial cooperation fund, and sponsored by CSC and uh, Goldman Sachs. And since then, you know, 2018, with the rise of U.S.-China trade war and tension, the broader relationship, economic-financial relationship between the two countries um, have deteriorated. But even with this more this um, relationship deterioration and when CFIUS basically knocked down a couple of other Chinese investments in the United States for a variety of concerns, especially p- privacy data issues, um, this... M- Goldman Sachs was able to successfully convince uh, Cepheus to say this is more basically representing this investment, this transaction, this investment in Boyle, um, um, material advanced material engineering company, was able to convince that this investment is. Does not involve a foreign alien, but rather this is a U.S. person transacting with another U.S. person. So, from a regulatory perspective, so that was the nature of of the deal. So, I think you know the lesson learned from that is well, if you depending upon regardless of the actual source of the money of the joint investment fund, as long as uh, the investment is as long as the investment can be structured in a way that it is perceived, at least from a regulatory perspective, it is not a foreign alien, then it has nothing to do with CFIA's concern.
3: Right. Fascinating. Um, yeah, it's, we talked about the power dynamic shift from the PBSC to the Ministry of Finance, and this is also part of the power dynamic because it puts, puts a lot of power in the hands of the, the partner that CIC chooses in whatever country it, it operates we've got central region we've got cic and then there's a third uh, organization that's probably the the least visible of the three which is the, the safe state administration of foreign exchange and they also manage a huge amount of money. I think you say maybe as much as $1.5 trillion. And they do it through a lot of, again, a complicated structure. But a, a lot of those organizations that, that Safe uses are not not even kind of listed in the PBOC's balance sheet. They're kind of off balance sheet, very difficult to, to figure out. So um, you talk about two tools that Safe uses. One are these investment funds. I think you call them the golden flowers, or maybe that's their nickname. And then there's a second type of instrument called Foreign Exchange Entrusted Loans. And um, both of those are quite important for, you know, again, diversifying how China manages its its wealth. So can you just give us an you know, overview of the first one, uh, the, the the various investment funds that SAFE uses to invest the, the foreign currency and kind of how that operates, maybe how that differs from CIC?
0: Uh, sure. Um, the, the biggest difference between SAFE affiliated or SAFE-owned investment uh, vehicles versus uh, CIC or Chinese Investment Corporation is that safe funds are not transparent. Uh, CIC, at least the CIC's international arms uh, international portfolio, are, are fairly transparent in compared with other Chinese funds because the CIC is a mem- is a voluntary member of uh, the San Diego Principle that governs uh, sovereign wealth fund. And whereas safe is is different, now safe became more active since 2008 because um, at that time it becomes more apparent, at least from Chinese Chinese policymakers and investment perspective, invest, investors perspective for them, the opportunity cost of investing in not just U.S. treasury but you know perhaps dollar dollar asset becomes risky and may not necessarily generate the best return. Um, because of the global financial crisis originated from the United States. And from their perspective, this actually, and combined with CIC's investment loss during that time, paper loss, gave the People's Bank of China, and in particular SAFE, the arm that managed foreign exchange reserves, an opportunity to see what we can do. And at that time, the political environment was also more convenient for Reserve diversification, or even more active reserve management, for two reasons. The first reason is that China's foreign exchange reserves surpassed by for, already surpassed one trillion at that time. And then the voice for reserve diversification simply becomes more uh, becomes louder because of you know obviously the loss in the U.S. market, and then China has more foreign exchange reserves, and the the opportunity lost for those people becomes more. More obvious, and the state-owned enterprise people, they even made the proposal to say we need to use this reserve to support state-owned enterprises going abroad, this whole go out, invest, ab- invest abroad, purchasing oil and gas uh, and mineral assets. At that time, those people started to voice uh, their, their 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 interest, and although although there are still some concerns with people like Zhou Xiaochuan with. Classic central bankers, but they become they, they, they are no longer as um, a, as fully objective as as they were before. And even around the time, I remember Zhou Xiaotuan giving give a speech. Uh, you know, many years later, in two, around two thousand thirteen. At that time, his his perspective already changed. In one of his speech in uh, in Tsinghua University, he said, "Perhaps we need to think about active reserve management." Such as the model of CIC. Now, I consider that as from coming from a central banker, that is dramatic. And at that time, when when uh, safe became more active, uh, or so so called less safe, if you will, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, there are certain uh, state council council members. They put out some serious writings and said, these are the six areas that we can invest our foreign exchange reserves in, including natural resources as well as other strategic assets. So now, in the context of uh, clean energy transition, people started to realize, how come China owns you know, demo- uh, cobalt or copper mines in Democrat- Democratic Republic of Congo or in Chile and elsewhere? And a lot of this actually happened through... What you just mentioned, one vehicle is the so-called SAFE's entrusted loan program. And then there are also other vehicles that SAFE established, such as through this institution called Buttonwood, SAFE was able to recapitalize major Chinese policy banks, such as China Development Bank and uh, Import and Export Bank. We read this in the news headline a lot these days, but the fact that these two policy banks can become who they are today actually has a lot to do do with the SAFE's capitalization of them. And then there are also a lot, several other industrial corporation funds related to that.
3: It's a a fascinating web. Just to kind of summarize, you're saying that um, SAFE was able to kind of a little bit, maybe using the model of central region, recapitalize the development banks, and then once those banks were recapitalized, they were in a position to make loans to Chinese companies to go out and acquire these assets. And then there's also the um, foreign exchange-entrusted loan program, where SAFE is essentially, through, through a bank, loaning foreign exchange again to uh, state-owned enterprises, mostly, at, at really favorable rates, much, much lower than they would be able to get on the open market, and again that supports their own, you know, ability to acquire foreign assets. And what's interesting to me, and you do a really good job describing this, is that now all of a sudden, and and we're safe as part of the central bank of China. So all of a sudden, you know, not that long ago, you had a a stodgy reserve manager. Now (laughs) you've got this kind of complicated global financing operation, you know, that's lending money. And it's lending money in a way that's really supporting the strategic interests of the state, and that—that's kind of, in some sense, the the broader theme of your book is that these various vehicles are ultimately, over time, have become aligned with the state's goals. They didn't really start out that way. They've just kind of evolved over time to be more uh, instruments of projecting, projecting power, I guess, or or um, just acquiring sort of assets that the state wants.
0: I, I think, uh, Kevin, you are right. And you you described the, uh, the whole process very eleg- elegantly. And if I can just add one example to just further strengthen the point that you make, you know, the central bank and the reserve management agency have become more aligned with the party in terms of strategic investment. If I can give one example, I would say it's the uh, Silk Road Fund. Uh, the Silk Road Fund was established specifically to finance President Xi Jinping's uh, Belt on the Road Initiative. And the primary uh, capitalizer of, of uh, the Silk Road Fund was SAFE. SAFE provided uh, 65% of uh, equity investment in the fund. And you know, at that time, uh, former uh, PBOC Governor Zhou Xiaotuan, he described the Silk Road Fund as a state version of the private equity investor and the investor with a long-term horizon. Throughout the Silk Road Fund uh, process established throughout its life, li- lifespan so far, it was actually received a, a second round of a capital injection. And it was at that time, is when uh, President Xi Jinping at, um, I think it's 2017. 2017, there was the uh, Belt and Road Forum for International Cooperation. And Xi Jinping committed additional uh, renminbi, hundred billion to the Silk Road Fund. And at that time, the deputy governor of the PBOC, it was Yi Gang, who then later become the central banker. So Yi Gang, he endorsed this plan the next day after President Xi Jinping's announcement. He he literally said this is quite necessary and timely to expand Silk Road Fund capital. So, you know, I just feel like, you know, you are absolutely right. This Biden, the first time when China leveraged the foreign exchange reserve was to capitalize uh, central Huijin to solve a crisis. And now even the central bankers themselves are more aligned with President Xi Jinping and the strategic aspect of it.
3: We're kind of running, running down on time a little bit. I, I had wanted to ask about other countries imitating this. You, you seem to think that, other countries even Western countries um, are looking at how China's managed to leverage its foreign exchange reserves. Um, so you think this is a model that we'll see being deployed uh, not just in China but you know across the globe?
0: Uh, I do think so and uh, uh, before uh, all, uh, before the Federal Reserve and the ECB major Western central banks raised the interest rate and in particular when the when for the time when in Europe the interest rate was negative. Uh, many European countries were considering this this whole model, the idea that you can borrow and then uh, borrow at negative rate, in <laughs> yeah, sense and uh, and uh, and then capitalize a uh, investment fund to achieve higher return. That's a good model. I think the government of Netherlands did that, and in the during the global financial crisis, uh, the Ireland restructured that fund following the similar model, and so is so is Italy. So this is not, I would say, this is not unique to China and it is not only unique to non-natural resource uh, exporting economies either because if you look around Saudi Arabia the PIF the public investment fund also issued a bond and it's but for a different purpose so from that perspective i think leveraging the resources the financial resources for whether it is foreign exchange reserve or oil asset for strategic purposes either for industrial policies or green transition I would say this is going to happen and happen more often.
3: I've got my eye out for it now, and I think all, all of us should. Um, one, one last question, more just kind of personal curiosity. Could you write this book now if you started today? Um, could you go to China, do the field research, do the interviews, have the conversations um, if you started doing that uh, today as opposed to six or seven years ago?
0: I, if I start from scratch today, I, I don't think I could get the interviews that I got before. Part of the reason uh, is because people may become very reluctant to talk to me and then they have good reasons. And mm, I would also not want to expose my contact to this kind of scenario. And then uh, there is also this um, uh, anti-espionage law, a very broad, broad sort of you know, coverage in terms of you know just anything potentially could be related to national security, you is like a no-no. So perhaps in terms of the interviews, no. But I would say the at least so far, the PBOC still publish their financial statement, and Silk Road Fund and all these funds, they still have numbers. The publicly listed companies or for that matter, um, Chinese investment in the United States, they still have to file uh, an SEC report. So a lot of my research is based upon digging through SEC filings. And I, I think that's actually quite, quite, quite relevant, but short answer is no, probably not.
3: Right. Well, I, you know, um, then I'm really glad um, that you, you did the work when you did. And it's a, it's a service to all of us to have this out there. And um, I look forward to reading your updates and your, your future research on, um, so, Zoe, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, to join us on the show. It's a real pleasure to, to talk to you, and uh, we wish you all the best.
0: Thank you, Kevin, for, for having me. And uh, it, that, it, it really means a lot to me to come on your show. Thank you.
3: Thank you. And uh, with that, uh, we'll pass it back over to Niels. Thank you so much, Zoe and Kevin,
2: for an absolutely fascinating look into how China manages their vast foreign exchange reserves which perhaps is one of the best-kept secrets in finance until now. It was so interesting to hear how China have gone from the old model to essentially now have trillions of dollars managed off-balance sheet and allocated not necessarily to get the highest returns and how there today seem to be very little difference in what the leadership wants and how the official institutions are allocating the money. And knowing how the world is heading for the Green Revolution and that China today owns copper and cobalt mines around the world should really raise some questions among those promoting this agenda. And of course, the way they leverage local institutions like Goldman Sachs to reduce regulatory and political hurdles is not to be ignored. That is it for today. Make sure you go and follow Zoe's and Kevin's work as well as getting a copy of their books because as you can tell from today's conversation, some of these ideas and topics are not being discussed enough on mainstream media. From Kevin and me, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you on the next episode. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other.
1: Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged.